a very warm welcome to the cathedral this November evening. My name is Andrew Carwood, and I have the privilege of being the director of music in this wonderful space, which has always been a place for worship and debate, for faith, but more importantly, for questions. I'll introduce our speaker in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of these events before, let me just explain how it works. In a moment, Paula Gooder will reflect on the mind-boggling message of Christ's birth and how the familiarity of the Christmas stories can mask just how revolutionary it is. The last part of the evening will then be devoted to answering your questions. The harder, the better. I didn't write that. It's been written in my script. But we do encourage you to be brave and come forward with your questions. Sometimes in a building like this, people can feel a little intimidated. It's good and necessary to question, and you should feel free to ask. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and then hold it up and it will be collected from you. We'll collect questions until about 7.35 uh, and then I will be able to discuss them with Paula and they will appear on the laptop uh, on the table just in front of me here. We would ask two things of you, that you keep your questions relatively brief and to the point, and most importantly, legible. So any GPs in the audience, please make sure that it's legible. We are also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag GodWithUs. The hashtag GodWithUs, all one word. So if you want to send your question through your mobile, just type it in, include that hashtag, and we will find it. We also have uh, a little bonus for you this evening. Um, some of my good friends are sitting over here with my colleague Simon Johnson, the organist of St. Paul's, and they are going to provide a little early uh, Christmas present for you in order to help reflect on what Paula is saying. We will end at 8 o'clock, and at that point, uh, there's a bookstall over here uh, where you are very welcome to purchase books, and Paula has kindly offered to sign them as well, and that will happen on the table over there, just behind where the singers are sitting. We're delighted to be able to put events like this on. It's very important for us to involve everyone in the questions of faith, and we do it for free, uh, but therefore there will be a retiring collection on your way out and it would be wonderful if you could be as generous as you could with that. Now, I was delighted when I was asked uh, to chair this event with this special person sitting on my right, principally because I thought it would give me a chance to sing a selection of Christmas medleys which have become dear to my heart. Little did I know that really this is going to be about getting behind the real message of Christmas and the narratives in the Bible. Dr. Paula Gooder is Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral, the first layperson 
to hold that role. When her appointment was announced earlier this year, we were congratulated with a warmth that made it clear not only had we made the right appointment, but just how much respect and affection she is held in. She is simply one of the best-known New Testament scholars and teachers of our time. Her numerous academic and popular books of biblical theology include Journey to the Major, Exploring the Birth of Jesus, and The Meaning is in the Waiting, the Spirit of Advent. But even more than this, she has a rare combination of gifts. She is not only a scholar of depth, but a person of faith and a brilliant and generous communicator who uses her gifts to illuminate the problems of our time. She also has a wonderful appreciation of music. It's very good to have you here as a colleague and friend, Paula, and we're delighted that for her first official event for adult learning, she is going to talk about the central mystery of our faith. Will you please now give her a very warm welcome? Thank you. It is lovely to be here with you. And it's a great treat to be able to spend a few minutes reflecting on Christmas as Advent hoves into view on Sunday. We have the chance to take a time, some time to think, to reflect, and to ask ourselves what Christmas means to each one of us. So I hope this evening you will go away with something that you can reflect on during the Advent period. But before we get there, I wonder who you think the real Christmas baddies are, you know, the arch-villains of Christmas. If you're a fan of Dr. Zeus, you might say it was the Grinch. If, like me, you're a fan of It's a Wonderful Life, it's surely Old Man Potter. If you read your biblical narratives, of course, Herod must get a look in. But I discovered about 10 years ago that there's another candidate for Christmas baddie. And that candidate is the New Testament scholar. Me, I'm the Christmas baddie. And I discovered it in a most distressing manner for me. When I was little, my greatest goal, my greatest dream was to get a Blue Peter badge. And even better than that, maybe to get on Blue Peter. If you are blessed with being very young, Blue Peter was the flagship children's program on television. It's just possible my children are slightly bemused by Blue Peter. But 10 years ago, Blue Peter rang, a researcher rang, and she said to me, would you like to come on Blue Peter? And I went, yes, I would love to go on Blue Peter, I said. Um, stupidly, I didn't ask her what she wanted me to do. So excited was I by the prospect of going on Blue Peter. So a month later, she called and said, well, our idea is that what we will do is get a local primary school to come in and do a Christmas tableau. 
and then you will come in as the New Testament scholar and tell us what's wrong with it. It'll surprise you to know that I wasn't able to make that booking on Blue Peter. Um, all of a sudden, my diary got busy on that day, and I was unable to go. But what that revealed to me was that actually, we New Testament scholars have, probably deservedly, a bit of a bad reputation when it comes to Christmas. We come along, and we look at your lovely nativity play, and we say, oh, well... You can't really have shepherds and wise men all at the same time. You know there wasn't a donkey in the story. You know that the angels appeared to the shepherds on a hill and not at the stable, so the, shepherd, the angels aren't allowed. Um, you know, don't you, that actually there probably wasn't a stable or an inn or an innkeeper or an innkeeper's wife or an innkeeper's lobster, if you watch Love Actually. Um, so what Blue Peter wanted me to do was to be a normal New Testament scholar and tell them what you couldn't have. The problem is, I don't agree with that form of New Testament scholarship. In a way, it's fun. It provides us with some interesting insights. But what you end up with are some sad shards of a nativity play at the end. Sad primary school children looking at you kind of bemusedly, asking, why am I not allowed to be a wise man in the nativity play if the shepherds are there? Actually, I am one of the world's biggest fans of nativity plays. And the reason why I am is because nativity plays, whatever form they take, are a joyful community, traditional retelling of a story that we know and love. Bring them on, I say. I love a nativity play. And frankly, if you did have a New Testament scholar direct your local nativity play, it'd be over in about 30 seconds, because I'd have to choose which gospel it came from, and then you could only have absolutely what was in. In a moment, you'll see that actually Matthew's gospel has hardly anything that counts as the birth of Jesus. Um, so we need them. They're important for us. And one of the reasons they're important for us is that they engage our imagination. They say, come into the text and imagine what you can see out of the text. The only problem is that if you forget that they are an act of grand community, traditional imagination, then actually you do genuinely believe that there was a donkey in Luke's gospel, that the angels were there at the stable. For me, the nativity play drives us back to the story and says, let's have the nativity play as we have it, but then let's also chew on it a little bit. What do we discover from the text? What's important in the text that we can see? The other thing that a nativity play does is that it engages in an act of translation. One of the things we often forget is that we think that if you take a text in its original Greek, like I do, and you put it into English, your translation's done, all sorted. You don't have to do any more translation. Actually, 
we do massive acts of translation every time we read a story and imagine what it looks like. And what happens in our nativity plays is we don't just translate it into English, we translate it into a form that makes sense to our Western modern minds. I say, that's fine. Um, you know, in an ideal world, you would all read the New Testament in Greek, of course, but you don't. You read it in English because it makes more sense to you. So why not also be aware that we translate it in different ways? We translate it into things that make sense for us. So let's just pause for a moment with one little detail, which is for me an interesting little detail, and reflect on how that is a grand act of translation. But before I tell you it, remember I'm fine with the traditional version. You can go away and have a stable as much as you like as far as I'm concerned. But there probably wasn't one. And you may know this already, but it's worth just noting that the whole tradition about Jesus being born in a stable comes from a single line in Luke's Gospel. And the single line reads like this. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the... We'll come on to that in a moment. But out of that, you get the whole reconstruction. So he, she was, Jesus was laid in a manger. Where do you keep mangers? You keep mangers in stables. So therefore, they must have been in a stable. There was no room for them in the... Um, let me explain now about that word, because that word is a really interesting word. The Greek word, I can't do this without telling you the Greek word, the Greek word that is translated then normally as in is the Greek word kataluma. And the Greek word kataluma means something like a lodging place. So we, in our Western tradition, when we read lodging place, go, ah, clearly an inn. Makes a vast amount of sense. Actually, it doesn't make sense in the first century world. Interestingly, there is another word for in that is used also in Luke's Gospel. Um, and if you want to play trivia for the evening, you can try and work out where it is, or I could just tell you, which might be more straightforward. But um, give you just a moment to see if you can get there, um, and then I will tell you it's in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, after the man has been found on the road by the Samaritan, they take him, the Samaritan, takes him to an inn. And you might be saying, if you are interested in these kind of things, oh, I wonder if that's the same word as is used for inn in um, the birth narratives. You'll know I'm going to say no, don't you? Because that's the whole point. Actually, it is not the same word that's used. The word that's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan is the word pandokian. And actually, it's a lovely word for an inn. Pan means all or everyone, and dokian means welcome. So the pandokian is the place where everybody is welcome. Isn't that a great word for an inn? Um, I think we should have pandokians around in England. 
But the reason why that was a Pandocian is because it was in the middle of nowhere. You need an inn in the middle of nowhere. It was between Jericho and Jerusalem. There was nowhere to stay. When you are traveling on the road, what do you need? You need a place to stay. You go to a Pandocian. But Bethlehem was not the middle of nowhere. Bethlehem was a small town, village. And if you went to stay in any Middle Eastern small town or village, probably until recently, then actually you would have been welcomed into somebody's home. That was how it works. The rules of hospitality dictate that if somebody comes into your village or town, then you would welcome them in your house. So therefore, in Bethlehem, you have no need of a Pandocian because you would welcome people into individual houses. Especially if you traveled to Bethlehem to be with kin, people who were family members, then you would expect to be welcomed into people's houses. So, back to the Cataluma. What, therefore, does the word Cataluma mean? It means the place in your house where you welcome guests. It's the guest room, really. So you might better translate that little verse that we know and love and laid him in a manger because there was no space for them in the guest room. The guest room was already full. The other thing you need to know, which I think makes this interesting, is in Galilee at that point, the way in which houses were set up were that they had a mezzanine level where people lived, and on the ground was where the animals were. So imagine an ancient Near Eastern house. They were crammed on the mezzanine level. You've just got a tiny baby. What do you not want your tiny baby to be happen to it, to have it crushed? So you put it down on, um, in a safe place in the manger with the animals. So probably no stable, probably no inn, probably no innkeeper, definitely no innkeeper's lobster. But what that gives you is a much different sense of what the narrative was about and actually, I think, suggests a different piece of theology. And the reason why I suggest it to you tonight is because the piece of theology, I think, is really interesting. If you start with an innkeeper who makes no effort to make, shove up a little bit to allow some guests in, then the innkeeper is making a deliberate refusal, saying, no, you are not welcome. And you may even know that Christmas carol, no room for the baby at Bethlehem's Inn, the idea being that they are deliberately turning him away. But think what different feeling it gives you if you simply say, actually, there was just no space. It was so crammed that there was no space for Jesus. And I think that's a really interesting piece of theology, that Today, often in our world, it's not that we make a deliberate choice and say, no, you are not coming in. We just say we're really busy, we're full up, there is no space. It resonates, I think, in a different way and gives you a different insight. Before I leave my Catalumas alone, let me just tell you one other feature which I think is absolutely fascinating. There's another Cataluma in Luke's Gospel and it is in a really significant place. 
right at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus has need of a cataluma again. Um, the Last Supper took place in a cataluma. And what's rather delicious about that is right at the beginning of Jesus' life, he had need of a cataluma and there was no room. At the end of his life, he had need of a cataluma. And he booked ahead so that he would guarantee the space. He sends his disciples off to go and find it. But just stop for a moment and think what Luke is asking you to think about when you think about that. That Jesus came in search of space as a baby. And at the end of his life, when he's looking at the greatest sacrifice he's going to make, he does it in a cataluma at the Last Supper. I, just, I find it a spine-tingling thing to notice. Way better than an inn, if you ask me. So for me, the point about asking these questions is asking the question about theology. What do they tell us? What do we learn from the stories that we can actually bring things into new life? Keep your stables, keep your innkeepers, but at the same time, just remember the Cataluma when you're watching the Nativity this year. The other thing I just want to say to you, which I think is so vitally important for understanding the birth narratives, is that often we miss the point of what they're trying to do. And it's a catastrophic missing of the point, which is what often causes New Testament scholars to pick the text apart. And it's simply this. What the gospel writers were trying to do were to demonstrate to an ancient audience, a Roman and Jewish audience, that what they were saying was true. And so they pulled on all the evidence that they could that would prove to an ancient audience that what they were saying was true. Now here's the rub. What proves to an ancient audience that something is true is the opposite of what proves to a modern audience that something is true. And that's where we have the problem. So for a modern audience, if I want to prove to you that something is true, I will prove to you that it is, it's not happened before. I've not pulled on anything from the past. I will give you multiple um, evidence. So I'll give you a source from here and a source from there and a source from over there, all independent, to demonstrate to you that it is, in fact, reliable. But it will be new. It will be exciting. It will be unusual. And that will tantalize you and grab your attention. If you went to an ancient audience and said to them, I've got something to tell you that is completely and utterly new. You will never have heard of this before. It will change the way you view the world entirely. They will say, get away from me, you mad person. Um, they do not like, in the ancient world, new stuff. What they like is old stuff. If you want to prove in the Roman world that something is true, you need to show that it's historical, that it has its roots far back in history. So just think about the birth narratives. They all start going, we can trace this back to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, 
to David. Um, they say, we know that you will know that this is true because we can show you how old it is. So the first thing is that it needs to be really, really old. The second thing is that it needs to be long foretold, that people expected this event. It's not new. People knew that it was happening. Our problem is that if I tell you of something that has great long antecedents and has been long foretold, and I prove it by citing a whole load of Old Testament texts to you, you'll say you're just making that up. And that's where we have the rub with the birth narratives and the modern world. It's what they were doing to prove that something was true, to us, proves that it's untrue. And that's where we really struggle with reading the birth narratives. The other thing just to have in your head is the Jewish understanding of history. And the Jewish understanding of history is actually really very important indeed. And again, is completely different from our understanding of history. I hope I can do this without confusing the person who's filming too much. I'm going to move. So imagine that we're thinking about history. So over here with Mr. Carwood um, is the dawn of time. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> and we move forwards in our idea of history um, in a line. And we continue onwards until I fall off the stage and we get to the end of time. It's a linear understanding of history. You start at one point, you move to the end. Jewish history is not like that. Jewish history is cyclical. It goes round and round and round. If you know your Psalms at all, you will know that sometimes when you're reading the Psalms, you're saying, what event is this? Is it creation? Or is it the Exodus? Or is it the wilderness wanderings? Or is it the return from exile? Or is it another event I don't know anything about? The answer whenever you find yourself asking that question is yes. Yes, it is all of them. It's really, really important that within the Jewish understanding of history, they understood God intervening in the world in exactly the same way, again and again and again. It changed, it had a different event, but they would go, ah yes, I've seen that before, so I know it's true. I can point back to the past, so I know it's true. So when the birth narratives come along and say, here is a new Moses, a new David, a new prophet, a new Elijah. What they were doing is saying, you know it's true. Um, what I like to do in talking about the Jewish idea of history is to call it the snowball of history. For me, it works nicely as an image. Imagine you're standing on the top of a hill and you've made a little snowball and you make a mark in your snowball and then you push the snowball down the hill. Um, as it goes down the hill, it will get a layer and another layer and another layer. The point in the snowball will still be the same, but you'll get another layer on top of it and another one and another one. For me, that's what's going on in the Jewish telling of history. What you get is layer after layer after layer of the same event. So, of course, Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus as this old, old story. But they do it because for them, it's telling you that it's true. 
So let's move on um, first to Luke's gospel, and then we'll move on um, after a short break to Matthew's gospel and pull out some of the strands that we find in there. I have to say that Luke is my favorite birth narrative story, apart from Matthew. But apart from Matthew, it's definitely my favorite birth narrative. And there's something that Luke does in his telling of the birth narrative, which is really quite interesting. And it sets up how we can understand actually both Luke and Matthew. The harsh reality is that we've hardly got any birth narratives in the Gospels. I don't know if you remember um, a long time ago, there was um, a Mr. Kipling advert, which I absolutely loved, and it caused such outrage, it was pulled after a few weeks. Um, Because what Mr. Kipling, the advert did, was it actually showed you the birth um, in the nativity play. So you had a woman actually giving birth in the nativity play, and the person standing next to the vicar said um, to the vicar, has Mr. Kipling ever directed a nativity play before? And the vicar said, no, but he makes exceedingly good cakes. But what I loved about it is that it draws our attention to the fact that we haven't got a birth narrative in either Matthew or in Luke, because actually what we've got is we've got a long lead up to the birth, and then you've got an after the birth, and you've hardly got any actual birth, and it's worth just noting that. And Luke, more even than Matthew, has a massive run-up to the birth. You've got the announcement of John's birth, the announcement of Jesus's birth, John's birth, then a little bit of Jesus's birth, then you've got the after stuff with Simeon and Anna. And it's worth just kind of having that in your mind when you're thinking about the birth narratives. Um, Matthew has hardly any birth narrative at all. Let me just read you the sum total of what there is. So Matthew mostly focuses on Joseph. Um, Joseph has this great anxiety about whether he should marry um, Mary, and the angel Gabriel comes, as you know, and speaks to um, Joseph. And all it says is, Joseph awoke from sleep. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The end. Just as well you're not going to do a nativity play from Matthew, I would say. It wouldn't last you very long. Um, But it's worth just recognizing that, that we don't have much in the way of actual birth narratives. In Luke, we have a little bit more. And the little bit more, which is important in Luke, is the announcement to the shepherds. The shepherds are out on the hills. Jesus has just been born. And the shepherds come hot foot to see Jesus. And in that announcement, there is absolute pure gold of theology, which we often miss because we're kind of rushing on to imagine the shepherds actually at the stable with Mary and Joseph. So let me just pull a few of Luke's strands out because the strands, I think, are particularly important. The first thing is that if you're reading Luke's birth narrative and you know your Old Testament, you have Bethlehem, you have shepherds, you have the hint of kings, and immediately you go, David. And the reason why it's important that you would say 
David is because David was the long-awaited anointed one. He was going to come and be the new king. So as soon as you got Bethlehem and shepherds and kingship mentioned all together, you're immediately back in your mindset thinking about King David and the new king who would come. And then you've got the angels. The angels are fascinating in Luke. Um, There are lots and lots and lots of angels in Luke until this moment when the angels appear to the shepherds. And then they disappear completely until the resurrection. You have nothing in the middle. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But the angels are really important in Luke's gospel because they tell us who Jesus is. They tell us what to expect. They announce the message of what is going on. But something unusual happens with the angels in Luke's birth account. First is that the angel who appears first isn't named. Um, Up until this moment, he's been called Gabriel. We assume the angel is Gabriel, but he's not called, called Gabriel. The next thing to notice is that Gabriel turns up with mates when he comes to speak to the shepherds. The whole host of heaven announces to the shepherds what is going to go on, what, what, what is going on. And their message is so very, very important. You know it really well, but let me, me remind you of it. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace to his people on earth. Now, if you know Isaiah, you will know that Isaiah's great prophecies can be boiled down into two points. The first is that when the moment comes, when God comes to transform the world, then God's glory will be revealed in the world. The second is that when the moment comes and God intervenes in the world, then peace and harmony will break out on earth. So in the angel's message, to anyone who knows their Old Testament, what the angels have announced is that the world has changed forever. The moment that people have been waiting for, for all these many years, has now come. The world is transformed. Salvation has arrived. The world is now a completely different place. And the reason why I love that piece of Lucan theology is because at this point, Jesus hasn't done anything at all other than turn up, cry a bit, drink a bit of milk. Other than that, not anything else. And often when we think about salvation, we think about it in terms of great activity. And there is just a beautiful moment where the angels arrive and say, salvation is here. And it's here because Jesus has arrived. He hasn't done anything else. And in case you're in any doubt of it, um, you then find it when Jesus goes to the temple and meets Simeon. And that beautiful line from the Nunc Dimittis, Simeon holds Jesus in his arms and he says, actually the wrong thing to our mind, but I think absolutely the right thing. We hear him saying, my eyes have seen my saviour. And he doesn't say that. He says, my eyes have seen salvation. 
that the physical fact of Jesus being present in the world has changed the world so much that actually salvation is present. Salvation is there in the world because of who Jesus is. And it's a salvation with a profoundly political edge. Anyone who proclaimed peace at the time of Jesus was making the most strong political message that they possibly could. The message that they were making was that there is a peace which is not the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was the crucial intervention of the Romans in the Roman Empire. And um, the Roman emperors declared that there was the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And what they did was that they made sure that there was peace because anyone who did not think that they would join in with the peace got killed. It was a very straightforward way of establishing peace. Um, I tell you, we will all be peaceful, and if you're not peaceful, I'll kill you. Do you agree with me? Excellent. So to have a message that says, a tiny baby has come, and there is peace, is a profoundly political statement against the rules of the day. That actually peace can exist in vulnerability, in poverty, in a tiny, frail baby. That's where peace can be found, not in military might. And then the final point, on top of all of that, to whom was this message proclaimed? Shepherds. Now, there's a bit of a tussle among New Testament scholars about what you should think about a shepherd. Um, there is one school of thought that says shepherds were outsiders, they were unclean, they were untouched, um, you shouldn't touch them, therefore they were the lowest of the low. There's another school of thought that goes, and King David was a shepherd, and you could be a landowner and be a shepherd and actually be quite wealthy. And I could play out for you the tussle between the New Testament scholars, but you'd get bored quite quickly. Um, but I do just want to say that actually I'm more on the lowest of the low end than I am on the King David end, that actually shepherds had to live outside of the village. They therefore couldn't keep purity laws. They couldn't observe all the laws of the Pharisees. And so therefore, it is more likely that they were regarded as unclean. So if the message announcing salvation is announced to the shepherds, then that tells us that actually, if you want to see salvation, you look to the outsiders, to the people who were on the outskirts of society, to the people who were not regarded by um, main society as being of any significance whatsoever. And for me, that's really important. A moment ago, I told you that after the angels went away on the sh when they appeared to the shepherds, they really went away and didn't come back for a long time. Because the rest of Luke's gospel is about who can notice who Jesus is. Um, you don't get it announced with a big, shiny, fiery angel. You've got to work it out for yourself, and you've got to carry on working it out for yourself. And for me, the most beautiful moment of that is Simeon and Anna, when they take Jesus into the temple, and they meet Simeon and Anna. And probably in the temple would have been two to 3,000 people. It was a big 
um, place. It would have been lots and lots of people. There would have been a crush going on. And Simeon and Anna, without the help of angels or voices from heaven or anything remarkable, went, there's salvation. And it's almost as though Luke is saying to us, are you the kind of people who can go, there's salvation? There it is. I see it. Luke sets us a challenge, I think, and asks us to reflect on where we can see salvation. The hint, start with people like shepherds, and you're more likely to see it there than you will anywhere else. I'm going to pause for a moment, and um, we're going to hear um, a carol set to music by John Ireland called New Prince, New Pomp. And this will causes me great happiness because in it you will hear mention of inns and stables and all of that. And you will know that I'm enjoying that enormously while the choir is singing. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere sing we with mirth. Christ is come well with us to dwell by his most noble birth. Behold a silly tender babe in freezing winter night in holy manger trembling lies alas a piteous sight. Noel, 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 sing we with mirth. Christ is come well with us to dwell by his most noble birth. The inns are full, no man will heal this little pilgrim bed, but false with silly beasts in creep to shroud his head. Noel, 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 sing we with mirth. Christ is come well with us to dwell by his most noble birth. This table is a prince's court, this crib, this chair of state, the beast a parcel of his pomp, the wooden dish his plate. Noel, 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 sing we with mirth. Christ is come well with us to dwell by his most noble In that poor attire, his royal liveries were. The prince himself is come from heaven, his pomp is prized there. No end, no end, we with mirth. Christ is come well with us to dwell. By his most noble birth. With joy approach, O Christian white, do homage to thy king 
and highly praise this humble pomp which he from him doth bring. Noel, 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 sing we with mirth. Christ is come well with us to dwell by his most noble birth. I'd never heard of that carol before, but I think it's absolutely beautiful. Matthew, and Matthew's unbirth narrative, as we've established already. Um, Matthew has a before-birth narrative, he has an after-birth narrative, but really not much of a birth narrative. And Matthew, like Luke, does remind us that with Jesus, everything has changed. But he just does it slightly differently. With Matthew, the key verse is his quotation from Isaiah 7, which is given to Joseph before Jesus' birth, that they will name him Emmanuel. So a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall name him Emmanuel. As you all know, that word Emmanuel is the key for Matthew's understanding about what the birth narrative is all about. Um, it is a simple Hebrew word. Im means with, Imanu means with us. So you, in Hebrew, you put um, the preposition, the um, pronoun on the end. So Imanu means with us. Imanuel, God with us. Or actually, with us, God which I think is rather nice. But what Matthew does in the telling of his story, far more than Luke does, is he tells us of the precariousness of the story. He reminds us time and again about what a dangerous thing this was that Jesus was born in the way that he did. You can almost feel Matthew standing on to one side going, really? No, that's a bad idea. I wouldn't have done it like that. Um, because time and time again, he shows you why it could have gone horribly wrong. It starts with Joseph. Would Joseph take Mary to be his wife? What would have happened if he didn't? And you were led into that sense that what, he might not, and then he does. Then, of course, you've got the danger of Herod. Um, and the danger of Herod is real, and we'll come back to him in a moment. But Herod might have killed Jesus. He could easily have killed Jesus. And then where would we have been? They flew, flew? to Egypt. They, this doesn't sound right that they flew to Egypt, but you know what I mean. They escaped to Egypt. Um, what happened if they'd got killed on the way? What happened if they wouldn't, never came back? What happened if they hadn't heard that Herod had died and could safely have come back? It's all a very dangerous, precarious narrative. And Matthew reminds us again and again that this birth was no easy thing. It was not the sensible course of action. It was dangerous, it was precarious, and probably shouldn't have happened in the way that it did. 
let me just give you a little note on Herod, because I think Herod is a fascinating character. One of the things that people often say about Herod is that you cannot prove that he did, in fact, slaughter the innocents. There's no historical account that records it. But what most scholars of Herod would say is there's no account that records that Herod did slaughter the innocents, but he's entirely the kind of person who might have slaughtered the innocents. He was altogether an unpleasant person. Um, to put it mildly. Um, Herod is a fascinating character, um, and I could go on about him for hours and hours. I won't. You'll be pleased to know. But Herod the Great, in short, should not have been king, and he knew it. And at the heart of who Herod was, was that simple fact. You may not know. Herod's father was from Edom. Um, in Latin, that's Idumea. So Edom were the ancient enemies of Israel. Israel had two deeply hated enemies. One was Moab, the other was Edom. So Herod's father came from Edom. His mother was a Nabataean, so came from what we would today call Petra, so across the other side of the Jordan. So although he actually did worship as a Jew, his heritage was, to put it mildly, dodgy. And no Judean would have trusted Herod at all. He had no claim to the throne whatsoever. He smooth-talked the Romans into allowing him to be king. And in order then to shore up his power, he married someone called Mariamne. And Mariamne was one of the Hasmoneans. Um, I won't go into detailed Jewish history, but after the exile, um, the Maccabees um, came to the throne and they formed a dynasty called the Hasmoneans. So the Hasmoneans then became the kings of Israel until the Romans arrived in 63 BCE. So therefore, um, he married Mariamne in order to be able to give him some um, reliability. But Herod was paranoid and he was completely convinced that somebody was trying to get him off the throne the whole time. So as a result of his paranoia, although he deeply loved his wife, Mariamne, we are told in the sources, he had her murdered because he thought she was about to challenge him on the throne. And then he had her two sons murdered, murdered her brother, her grandfather, and her mother, just to be sure. So when you, I say we don't know whether he slaughtered the innocents, but he was the kind of person who would have done, you'll see what I mean. He was a profoundly paranoid man who had gripped onto power. So when we get the Magi coming to talk to Herod about a king born in Israel, imagine the terror for a pretender to the throne who had only kept the throne because he'd managed to kill everyone else who might look like they might have a throne. His absolute terror that he might be thrown off the throne was really real. And I think in that, you get a remarkable insight into what Matthew is telling us about power and Jesus and kingship. On the one hand, you have somebody who shouldn't be king, on the other hand, you've got somebody who really is already king. On the one hand, you've got somebody who is so terrified about power that he has to kill everyone to keep it. 
On the other hand, you have God who was prepared to give up all power entirely and be born as a precarious, risky baby. Just contrast those pictures and you can feel Matthew telling you time and time again that this was a risky exercise that Jesus engaged in. This was the craziest thing on earth and it proved that he really was king, that he really had the power. Um, There's just a little thing you might like to know about the wise men um, before I move on to John's gospel. Um, The wise men fascinate me. Um, The Greek word is magi, um, the singular is magus. And uh, a magus um, grew up in the Persian court as interpreters of dreams. So when they started, they were regarded truly as wise people. But by the time you get to Acts, they've become distrusted. Um, There's a magus appears in Acts, in Acts 13 verse 6, who is held up as a false prophet and a charlatan and called a magus. So the interesting question is, when Matthew tells us about the magi, does he have in mind his wise, wise Persian interpreters of dreams, or does he have in mind the slightly dodgy, um, off the back of a lorry charlatan that you find in Acts? We don't know. And often people will go, well, surely he has the Persian model in mind. I wonder if he's got the dodgy characters in mind, that the Magi come out as upright and righteous and godly next to Herod. And therefore, what you've got is possibly these charlatans who um, look good next to Herod. But what they do is follow the truth. They follow what they understand to be um, the way of truth. I need to end. And what I want to end with is actually suggesting to you that um, I've talked um, this evening about two birth narratives, unbirth narratives, Luke and Matthew. What if all of the Gospels actually have a birth narrative? It's just in the other two, we haven't quite noticed them until now. For me, Mark's gospel is itself a birth narrative. It's just a birth narrative of a different kind. My absolute favorite favorite opening line of any gospel, I say pausing just for a moment, yeah, we'll go with that for a moment, but my absolute favorite line is Mark 1.1 the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. What that means is everything that follows is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. The story of Jesus is the birth narrative of the good news. The birth narratives of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. The key bit about Mark is that the birth narrative plays on in our lives. It carries on in who we are as people. So Mark has a birth narrative. It just hasn't got a baby in it, which is why we don't like it quite as much. And when you realize that, you actually realize that the best birth narrative of all is John 1. John 1, the opening to John's gospel, is the supreme, profound, thoughtful exploration of precisely what Matthew and Luke are trying to do, which is to tell us who was this person? 
Why was this poor person important? Why is the world now completely different? Because this person came. So I want to end my talk by reading you John 1. I am a massive fan of John's Gospel. And the reason why I am is that it is the kind of the juices of deep, deep contemplation over the years. You can feel the years and years of prayer and thought and reflection that comes out. There's a lovely Jewish interpretation that believes that if you read certain passages of Scripture, you will have a vision of heaven. Um, for us, slightly bizarrely, those passages of Scripture are things like Ezekiel 1, um, which is all about the chariots and things, which we find it hard to get our heads around. But I love the idea of Scripture, that there are passages of Scripture that are so deep, so profound, that you can see right into heaven when they're read. Um, I think if there are any candidates in the New Testament for that Jewish belief of um, reading scripture, giving you a religious experience, an understanding of God. I would put for you John 1 and John 17. For me, those two are the two that evoke a vision of heaven. So I'm going to read for you John 1. In case it distracts you, let me just warn you, um, I've retranslated it for this evening. So if you're going, I've not heard that translation before. No one has. Um, and you can decide what you think about it later on. But let me just read as we end. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything happened through him. Not a single thing that happened, happened without him. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. A man came, sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness, to witness about the light, so that everyone might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he witnessed about the light. The true light which sheds light on all people was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world happened through him but the world didn't know him. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't accept him. But whoever did welcome him and believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, children born not from blood, nor from the will of the flesh, nor from the will of a man, but from God. And the word became flesh and set up camp with us. And we gazed in wonder at his glory. 
glory as the only child of his father, full of grace and truth. This is the truth sent from above, the truth of God, the God of Can I start by saying a huge thank you to Paula, obviously, for that um, fascinating, witty... I've, I've got a lot more adjectives I could have used there, but I haven't... I haven't you got really. cut short. I got cut short. And to the singers who are just, just departing, it makes, it's great to have some music in this. Um, we've got questions coming in, which is wonderful. Please, as I said, don't be shy. We've got a few more minutes uh, to collect. So if you want to ask uh, a question, please do. Please do that. 
so I have various things in front of me here. You've obviously stimulated a lot of thought, which is, which is brilliant. Um, I'm going to start with some questions which relate to someone we've not discussed mm -hmm. very much, which is Mary. Mm -hmm. And the first one I've got here, it says, um, given your defense of the historical reliability of the birth narratives, might it be fair to cite Mary as the probable source of the oral tradition that the writers of Matthew and Luke transcribed? It's a great question. It's quite it's a good one. It is. Um, and and it, in a way, it kind of refers you back to various things that Luke in particular say, um, where he talks about Mary pondering things in her heart. Now, the only way Luke could have possibly known that Mary pondered anything in her heart would be because she mentioned it. Um, so personally, yes, I would be a big um, proponent of Luke, um, particularly Luke, possibly also Matthew, um, gaining their sources um, from conversation with Mary. And if you want to just do a little bit of a historical wonder to work out how that could have happened, this is all about whether we believe Christian tradition to be true or not. If so, if you don't, it doesn't work. But if you do, then the Christian tradition has Mary going with John to Ephesus after Jesus' death. Um, Luke, um, if, if Luke, there's so many ifs you have to do in order to do these things. If Mary went with John to Ephesus, if Luke was Luke the physician who's mentioned in Colossians and also in Acts, um, if he's that Luke, then he will have travelled with Paul um, through Ephesus and could well have met Mary um, on the travels. So it is actually possible to postulate a historical scenario in which it happened. Incidentally, he would also then have met John. And I think it's really interesting to reflect on some of the synoptic gospels, synoptics being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, writers meeting John and what they made of John when they met him would be... It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because, because people must have met, e yeah. met each other. It's, 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 it's inevitable. Now, I've got a, a slightly cheeky one here. I'm staying with Mary yes, at the okay. moment. I've got a slightly cheeky one, and then a, then a very, very straightforward and easy one after that. Lovely. What do you think would have happened to Mary had Joseph abandoned her? Even so, would they ever have escaped the rumours and the gossip? Because, I mean, that, that's certainly something which yeah. hasn't changed no, absolutely. over time. It's some. Um, it, I think it's a very, very powerful question. Um, the answer is there is no evidence at all in the first century that women were actively stoned um, for adultery, with the possible exception of John 8. Mm -hmm. Kind of put that in a footnote and come back to it. If you, it it's an interesting one. But there's no evidence within rabbinic texts that women were actually stoned. But she would have lived on the outskirts of society. She would have been shunned. Um, her reputation would have been in, in tatters. And you're right. I mean, prob quite possibly that um, they would have lived with that reputation, Joseph and Mary, um, for the entirety of their life. And for me... The thing that, like, I, I've come late to an appreciation um, to Mary in my life. And there is something I think really very powerful for me about her silent presence through the Gospels. And the recognition that when Gabriel announced what Gabriel announced to Mary, there's a very high chance she was 13. Maybe a little bit more, but not a lot more. And when you think of, so I've got, now I've got a 15-year-old daughter, so this really kind of, kind of lands home, um, that she was little more than a child. And yet Mary um, 
her, her response to Gabriel, um, who she is through the Gospels, is remarkable. You only see little shadows of her, but I think she is an incredible figure all the way through the Gospels. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, this is the hard one, I think. Uh, what do you think is the theology of the Annunciation and the Virgin Birth? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, could, I could do little interludes now to give you some time <laughs> to think. <laughs> um, let me, let, I'm going to start at the easier end and then move to the harder end. And I'll, I'm going to sound like I'm being really controversial and then um, not be quite so controversial okay. having said it. I don't believe in the virgin birth. I do believe in the virginal conception. Um, uh, that's, for me, a really important distinction, um, which is that um, the virgin birth um, imagines that Mary gave birth to Jesus and remained a virgin. Um, I would say that um, the Gospels point us towards a virginal conception, not towards a virginal birth. Um, the theology behind it um, is is very difficult to pull out because it's had so many layers through Christian history um, that I find are very difficult layers. Um, I, I still find it very difficult to sit in conversations um, with people who want to say um, the virginal state is pure, um, and I sit there with It's two, dangerous. It is it? very dangerous. Well, I sit there with concept. two children and yeah. saying, and what are you saying of mm. me? Um, and and it, it, has, it has had such a powerful impact on Christian history about how women are viewed. Yep, exactly. So that is the bit that I really struggle with, and the layers on it become really very difficult indeed. Mm. Um, personally, the sense I make of the theology of the Annunciation and the Virginal Conception is that if we want to say that Jesus is fully God, as well as fully human, you have to have some element by which you can say, this is the divinity part. There were other explanations that you could have come up with, but this was the one that the gospel writers mm -hmm. gave us. And, and I have no problem with... People say, well, how can you believe in something like the virginal um, conception? I say, because I've had a baby. Um, and actually, birth is the most incredible miracle in itself. And, and one of the things I used to love when I was pregnant, um, I didn't enjoy a lot about being pregnant, but one of the things I enjoyed about being pregnant was that moment where you'd say to the doctor, and what does the placenta do? And they would go, um, keeps the baby alive? Yeah, but how? Well, and I'm, they may be, be able to tell you now, but I think there is something kind of really powerful about recognizing that birth is in and of itself an amazing miracle. And therefore, for me, it's only a little tiny step from birth as a miracle to the virginal conception as a miracle. Yeah. And I can live happily with that. Very good, thank you. Um, now, a, a couple of questions which relate to um, history and evidence and our, you know, the, the concept you're talking, yes. the, the cyclical nature yes. of Jewish history, for example, the idea, just to remind you, that, that God has intervened and, and he's done it before and that this, therefore, therefore this must be a truth. Um, does this cyclical nature tell us something important about how we understand the gospel narratives and, and truth, what is true? And there's a second bit to this question here, which um, is very topical in its um, language. How do we hold on to the good news, which, which we've explored in your talk, in the era of fake news? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
let me do the easy half, yeah. first half, and then we'll go on to the second half. Um, I think, for me, the moment I realized that actually what was going on underneath the Gospels was the Jewish understanding of cyclical history, absolutely everything changed for me. I suddenly went, oh, that's why they tell the story like this. That's why it's so important that Jesus is the new Moses, the new Elijah, the new, you know, you go on, new David. Um, it, it, it makes a whole load of sense of why the Gospels tell you what they tell you. Um, and then you also have that radical bit at the end, which I think is also glorious. So it is true if you can demonstrate it's happened before. And then you get to the resurrection which is so much not anything that has happened before. Um, and you can feel um, kind of the ground shaking underneath their feet about how they prove that something is true because it's completely new. And I think it gives, once you have that in your head, it makes a radical new sense of what's going on in the gospel narratives. That, that's the easy first yeah, bit. Okay. Um, I think um, fake news is, is a very, very challenging concept which has always existed and actually the reason why the gospel writers told the stories in the way that they did was because they lived in a world of fake news um, how did you know that something was true so you had all of these kind of great magicians who would come along and say I am here to change the world and I'll show you by drawing and um, there was one of my favorite of examples of this is somebody called Honey the circle drawer um, I just think he's got the best name in ancient history I'm tempted to call my daughter Susie the circle drawer but she wouldn't let me um, but there's just something about that kind of that magical, mystical, there were lots of those characters around. And um, Josephus, who writes history of um, the f um, Jews in the first century, tells us story after story of people going, it's me, it's me, we'll go into the desert, um, and then nothing happened, or they got killed by the Romans. Um, so I think that the question of fake news has ever been thus. And the question of the Gospels, the question of Paul, is in a world of fake news, how do you know what is true? How do you discern truth? The Gospel writers gave us one model, which is let us tell you how it was all foretold so that you know that it is true. Um, I think our big challenge for today is we don't live in a world where that works anymore. So how now do we know whether something is true? What, what would, if we were going to write the gospel narratives today and say, this is true, and I'm going to prove to you that it's true because, what would come after our because, I think is a really interesting question, because I think we've lost faith in how we prove something to be true. And I think that's the crisis that we're facing politically at the moment. I think that's absolutely right. Trust is the, trust is the key thing. So that brings me very neatly onto another question, which is here, which is, are, well, are there alternative um, nativities for today? How do we, how does the story you told us tonight rediscover its edge and relevance in the, in the grit and mess of our broken lives and society? Because it's, there's a danger. It's all too comfortable, isn't yes. it, at the moment? And it, I, for me, it's a personal danger because one of the things I love about the season of Christmas is that it brings people in, people who wouldn't necessarily come to church, are here, they're experiencing, they're listening to that story, but if what we're giving them is a, or if what they're taking away, let's say, is a slightly skewed thing, what, what have we got for, for the world today in terms of... I think it's stuff? a great challenge. 
and I think there are so many things you could say about it. Um, I think one thing's worth saying is that people who try to reintroduce an edge artificially almost certainly fail. Because actually, the reason why people come at Christmas time is not to have their fur rubbed up the wrong way, to be put on edge, to be given a completely new thing they've never thought of before. There is something important about um, that sense of, well, in, it's interesting, isn't it? I've just talked about how we know something is true because it's happened for a long, long time. Actually, Christmas is the time where people go, no, tell me the old, old story. I like the old story. Don't tell me the new one. I want an old one. Um, so there is that, which I think is important. But I actually think that, in, in a sense, what I was trying to talk about tonight was actually what difference does it make? How does it change the world we live in? And that's why I love Luke's story. It's Luke's going, salvation. Salvation is here. And you can almost hear Luke's audience going, yeah, but the Romans are still in control. Um, I'm still poor. My life is still awful. Um, nothing is as I want it to be. And Luke is saying, salvation is here. You've got to look for it. And for me, the kind of the golden thread of Luke, which I absolutely adore, is salvation doesn't look like you think it looks. Salvation looks messy. It looks um, kind of, it's poor. It's not to be found in the places you will look for it. Um, but the world has changed. Glory to God and peace on earth. The world is a different place now. Therefore, salvation is in our midst but you're going to have to look for it. And for me, there is something in that which is really, really powerful. Yeah, I, I loved what you said about how Luke announces everything, and then, but then doesn't the, the angels disappear, and we have to find it ourselves. Is this, is this a message we can cope with in the modern world, do you think? I mean, we need it. Yes. But in a world which seems um, obsessed with wealth creation and... You know, to, to find salvation in the marginalised or in the, in the way you don't expect it? No, I don't think it is something we can cope with, but it never was. And in a way, one of the things that's kind of fascinating about being an ancient historian, as I am as well as a New Testament scholar, is you kind of go, well, the world is boringly the same. You know, when Jesus was born, um, they didn't all go, do you know what, we don't need our fine palaces anymore, we recognize the truth, we're going to give up all our wealth and power and go and follow Jesus from a stable. You know, there's those stories in the gospel of the rich people who couldn't do it. You know, I love that story of the, um, the rich young ruler who went, I want to follow, you know, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, lovely. Um, go and sell whatever you've got, and you went, yeah, but not that. <laughs> Anything else, but not that. Um, it's never been a welcome message. Yep. Oh, that's true, that's true. Um, and a couple more things on the historical um, uh, stuff. Um, it says, how much does the story of Herod's slaughter of the innocents and the flight into Egypt relate to Matthew's desire to portray Jesus as the new Moses. It's going back to the Oh, almost point. entirely. I mean, th and this is where you get into this. Um, that's why people ask the questions about historicity, is that Matthew tells you a theolog... Matthew is telling you a theological story, just as Luke is telling you a theological story, which he weaves together from Old Testament narratives. So, therefore, 
he needs Jesus to be in Egypt in order to be able to demonstrate that this is the new Moses who's going to come out of Egypt. And then he gives a new sermon on the mount with different commandments. Um, and there are com- there's all sorts of parallels of Jesus as the new Moses. He brings the new law. Um, he goes up the mountain an awful lot in Matthew's gospel. There's a discussion among scholars. There's a Various scholars would like Jesus to go up the mountain five times in Matthew's gospel because it would be nice and pleasing and like the five books of Torah. Actually, Jesus goes up six mountains, which spoils. The, oh. And so it's kind of five mountains and the other one. Um, but actually, you have, therefore, Matthew telling you the story of this new Moses figure who is coming with the new law, which looks completely different. So yes, he does need Jesus to go to Egypt in order to do that. And that's what causes people to say, well, did he just make it up? Um, And that's where you get into the chicken and egg. Um, Does he make it up so he can start with Egypt and that's pleasing? Or actually, did Jesus go to Egypt? And then Matthew goes, oh, that's very interesting. is that not the new Moses? Yeah, yeah. You can play it either way. Well, there's, and there's another question here, which yeah. says, do you, do you think the birth narratives were developed after the resurrection as further proof that Jesus was the Messiah? Is there a sense these guys are writing retrospectively in order to make it all line up? Um, they were certainly written after the resurrection. Um, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that the gospel narratives um, come from, and then name a date. I can tell you with absolute confidence that every single New Testament scholar thinks that the Gospels were written after the resurrection. After that, I can't tell you anymore about what every single New Testament scholar thinks. So anywhere from um, the 50s all the way through to the second century are when people think about the Gospels being written. Um, And there is no, I think there's no doubt that what the gospel writers are doing are making sense of who this person was. Um, I have no problem with them being so fascinated by who this person was, like Luke, they go around and find people to tell them, Elizabeth, Mary, you know, all the early people, um, that, that actually what happened, and then from that they build their narratives. You can, of course, go the other way and say that actually what they did was they constructed a narrative after the resurrection to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. Um, I don't personally go that route, but it, it, it's one of those arguments you can go in either direction. It, it, as I say, it's a chicken and egg. Either you can say that they collected all the evidence and then they put it together and they saw the, a pattern, or they started with the pattern and they reconstructed it backwards. Um, you can't prove yeah. the other argument is untrue. Um, you can't prove it to be true either. So. Now, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do two more because I've just got to keep an eye on the clock. Um, I hope I know the answer to this one already. It says, if God with us is an ongoing reality, to whom does the us refer? Is it believers only, or is it the whole of humanity? I think I know the answer, but the implications of the answer are enormous, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. There is only one answer, because there wasn't an us when he came, mm. if you see what I mean. Um, the us developed, if you want to make it us as in a small group of Christians, they didn't exist when he came. So therefore, he would have been God on his own, um, which wouldn't have been such a great Christmas message with a, with a God all by himself. <laughs> um, 
So therefore, God with us has to mean the us he encounters in the world that he made and loved. And therefore, it has to mean the whole of humanity. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to take on board, isn't it, in some ways, as, as, mm. you know, as believers. Who, I mean, if you're, if you're going down a path of saying you have to believe certain things, you have to do certain things, you have to have faith, people who don't have that, yes. it's, quite, it's, it's a hard thing, isn't it, to hear sometimes. Do you know, I don't find it hard at all. Um, for me, it is the absolute heart of what I believe as a Christian, is that um, God came for the world, the whole world. Um, and fortunately, I exist in the world, so that means me as well. But that kind of that desire to privatize God is um, something that I've never really felt. I think there is just, I mean, I get a kind of little tingle um, down my spine when I think God for us all, every last single one. You know, even those really annoying people I really don't like. Um, God for them too. Um, that's who God is. Now, here's, here's, a good, here's a good sort of science, sort of science one. If God is outside of time, how can it make sense to speak of Christ becoming incarnate and entering history, coming into our timeline at a particular moment? Um... I'm a bit of a Doctor Who fan. And um, in Advent, Advent messes with your sense of time. Um, and um, in, I think it's the David Tennant Doctor Who manifestation um, where Doctor Who talked about wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs> and um, I've always thought that that's the best explanation of theological history, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, which is that actually God is infinite, and chooses to be finite. God is beyond all time and chooses to locate himself in time. God is beyond our imagining and presents himself to our vision. There is something absolutely beautiful about that paradox of outside of time and thoroughly bounded in time. God did not need to choose to do that, but God did, and that's what makes the incarnation amazing. And the time is our concept, of course. Yes, indeed. Not God's yes, concept, that's right. And God invented it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so if he wants to make it wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, he can. Paul, you've given us so much this evening. Um, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to ask you um, if you have a final thought that, that I mean, you, you've probably got 101. Yes, yes, I'm sure you don't thoughts. want to ask me, yes. <laughs> but there's something that all these wonderful people here can take away this evening, especially as we're about to start on our Advent journey towards Christmas. I think, for me, the amazing thing about the Christmas story is that in it, I see something new every year that you can read it again and again and again and see a nugget, see a line, see a word that you've never noticed before. And in that old, old story made new each year, for me, what is really powerful is that um, the message comes back time and time again in John's beautiful words. Um, the word became flesh, and we gazed at him in wonder at his glory. That does it for me every year. And even telling you now, my hairs on the back of my neck have gone again. Because 
that God who is beyond all time, who created the world, in Matthew's most precarious way, chose to become a baby, so that in Luke's glorious um, announcement, salvation can be made known. And that old, old story is still true today. So you look out at the world and it looks grey and miserable and hopeless and full of fake news and it's going to hell in the handcart. And into that world, the word became flesh and we gazed at his glory in wonder. That'll do it for me. Thank you very much, Paula.